Well, please stand with me as we rise to read God's Word together, and you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, it is always good to have one open and in front of you as we study God's Word together, and so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 74, and we come this morning to study all of chapter 34 in what, Lord willing, will prove to be the second to last study and exodus that we've been working through these many months, and we'll look at all of chapter 34 this morning, but to get us going, I just want to read the first nine verses, so the first third, really, of this incredible passage, and then pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you through his covenant word. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Then Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would be with us this morning. By your word and through your spirit, that you might strengthen our hearts, that you would comfort our consciences, that you would bring us to know that your glory has been revealed in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And so help us then to see him this morning with eyes of faith, with hearts of repentance, with souls of meekness and earnestness. Lord, help me to preach as you say I must, as we proclaim your name this morning. Help us to hear, help us to learn. Help us to live, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For about seven years, the major publisher Harper & Rowe had been trying to get a relatively well-known pastor from the Christian Missionary Alliance to write a book for him. And this pastor had consistently refused to write a book for a variety of different reasons, not least of which is he didn't think it was right to make a whole lot of money teaching people about God. Uh, But eventually, his sons prevailed upon him, taking him out to lunch and saying, Dad, we need you to write this book for Harper and Roe because we want our kids, we want want our grandchildren 
to know that you've published with this major respectable publisher. And so eventually he set his pen to paper and somewhat reluctantly sent a manuscript off to Harper and Rowe. That's a manuscript that many would tell you is one of the most influential books written in the last 100 years in the English language. It's a book whose influence is surely in no small part due to the famous nature of its first words, where the author writes, what first comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Some of you know that book by a man named A.W. Tozer, titled Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into your minds when you think about God, it reveals, yes, certainly much about you. What comes into your minds when you think about God should change your life in essential ways. What comes into your minds when you think about God, as we're going to see by the end of our text today, has much to tell about what you think about God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because kids, what you need to know, that when you come to study God's Word, God is not first and foremost about adjusting your lifestyle. God, God really first and foremost is about adjusting, adjusting your looking. He knows you need to look to Him in faith if you're ever going to live in a way that brings Him the glory that He alone is due and in a way that is very much paradigm shaping for the rest of Scripture. Our chapter today is going to show you not only how you look to the Lord in order that you might live, but what you must see, what you must know about God. So if you weren't with us last week, we worked through chapter 33 and saw that after the golden calf incident of chapter 32, God had decided that what he was going to do with Israel is that he was going to bring them, as he had promised, into the promised land. He's going to drive out their enemies that they might dwell in peace and prosperity. But God said his presence wasn't going to go with Israel. We said it was something like God saying, yes, the train ride to glory land full of milk and honey. That's still going to get there. I've just canceled my reservation. I'm not going with you anymore. And so Moses began to intercede for Israel before the Lord, uh, saying to God, in many ways, the summary statement of Moses was, Lord, if you don't go with us, what's the point of even sending us? And it was in the midst of that intercession that Moses uh, prayed unto God one of the greatest four-word prayers that has ever been uttered, where he says, show me your glory. And so we're going to pick up the story today, how God answers that request as Moses is going to hide himself in a rocky cleft. And if you look down at chapter 34, you'll notice it has three simple sections. That's about knowing God. It's about being conformed to Christ's likeness. It's a text that's rich in its covenant meaning, but I'm just going to walk through it with three simple words. First, behold. Second, belong. Third, become. We're not going to spend too much in that middle section of belong, but we're going to spend more in the first and third sections. So first, behold God's glory. You'll see verse 1 of chapter 34, the Lord commands Moses to cut another two tablets of stone that God can write once again the law that he has spoken already to Moses and to the people. As Moses broke those tablets, of course, children, and so he says you need to cut these tablets. And then if you glance through verse 2 through 4, you'll see Moses says you need to prepare, not only by cutting the tablets, but you need to prepare in particular ways to meet with me because I'm getting ready to descend on the mountain. So God writing his word on the tablets is... 
not only a rewriting of the law, but it's a signal of what's getting ready to happen later in this chapter, that he's going to renew his covenant relationship uh, with Israel. It was a covenant relationship, of course, that uh, they've heard now for, for many months, but of course uniquely heard there in Exodus chapter 19 when God said he was going to descend on Mount Sinai, giving even the people quite similar instructions. Uh, Moses now hears in verse 2, 3, and 4 about how he's to ready himself to prepare to meet with God. And so Moses is all situated, and Moses is all ready, and look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You might remember from last week that Moses had said, Lord, I want to see you. And God says, no, you don't get to see me, but you get to hear me. Lord, I want to, to look upon you. And God says, no, you, you don't get to look upon me, but you're going you're gonna to listen to me. I'm going to proclaim my name before you. And notice what God had said, even as we noticed last week in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 33. He said that he's going to hide Moses in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And kids, you need to know that God the Father doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a back. What this seems to be communicating is that Moses is going to experience something in the proclamation of God's name through the word that's going to be announced there at Mount Sinai. He's going to experience something of God's essential essence, his divine power. But of course, to see God in all his fullness there at the mountain would be to comprehend God in his fullness and, and no finite person can comprehend an, an infinite God but Moses is waiting to hear something of who God is Moses is expectantly waiting in the rocky crag to see God's glory now there are certain sentences even phrases that someone can utter, and many of you, perhaps even almost all of you, will know pretty quickly what the subject is that we're talking about if you just hear the sentence. So, for example, if I was to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, you'd probably be right to assume that we're talking about the Declaration of Independence. Or perhaps if you're more literarily inclined, someone might say, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And you might know that Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities is being talked about. Or, kids, perhaps someone comes up to you and simply says, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> and you know someone's talking about Star Wars. Uh, what you find now in verse 6 and 7 of Exodus 34 is the Bible's creedal statement on God's character. It's a statement that's so central to Israel's experience and even their life being lived before this covenant Lord that you're going to find it repeated all throughout Scripture. It's going to show up here, of course, in Exodus, Numbers, Nehemiah, Psalms, Joel, Jonah, Nahum. And I want you to notice what God says you must know about who he is. And as he told Moses at the end of chapter 33, it all begins with his name, doesn't it? You see verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. Uh, you might be like me and want to know what's the tone of that proclamation. Is it quiet? 
Is it shaking and almost soul-shattering? Is it just dignified in its weight and gravity? What we know in Scripture is when you find a name repeated twice, there tends to be this gravity and urgency attached to the moment. You can think of David saying, Absalom, Absalom. Or the incarnate Jesus Christ saying, Martha, Martha. There is an ascended Jesus Christ saying, Saul, Saul, the Lord, the Lord. So what's in a name? Well, verse 6 and 7 says, there's a lot in this name. Because I want you to see a couple things about God's fullness. First, Yahweh is full of benevolence. You see the text continues, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Our kids, do you understand what is the difference between mercy and grace? That God is merciful, uh, that's his benevolence, that's his goodness in your misery. Whereas his grace is his goodness according to your guilt. That he's full of benevolence, he's full of goodness. You see also, he's full of patience. The text continues, he's slow to anger. Uh, the original language is somewhat unique on this attribute of God because it more woodenly means something like he's long in the nostrils or he's long in the nose. And that might seem altogether weird until you realize that the ancient people often would kind of picture anger as flaring the nostrils. And God is long to become long in the nose, that he is patient towards his people. He's full of benevolence, full of patience. You see faithfulness as well. Verse 7 continues, 6 into 7, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That twice-repeated phrase, it's really just one word, is steadfast love. It's, it's a word that's almost impossible to, to really capture in English. It's why other translations would have it as loving kindness or great love or mercies in the plural. It's speaking about the fullness of God's love, that it's this free and forever love, it's this long and lasting love, it's this covenantal and comprehensive love, it's a love that knows no height or depth or length or breadth, it's a love that belongs, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love so central to who God is that the New Testament can tell us God is love. And one scholar says in his commentary in Exodus, when he gets to the beginning of verse 7, he says, it would be nice if God ended here. Because so often, isn't it true that people just want to focus on his benevolence, patience, and faithfulness, his loving kindness, not the truth that God is also full of justice. You see how verse 7 ends. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I'm not going to go into great detail related to this. You could go back to our previous study in January of the second commandment where this language is used once again. But students, you want to realize, even though many Christian traditions throughout the ages have said so, this is not a text that talks about generational curses, hexes, or uh, demonic oppression. Nor is it saying that children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will suffer for the sin of their ancestors. You can, later on this Lord's Day, you can look through Ezekiel 18, where God seems, even by that point so far in the future, they're still not understanding this truth well enough to know that you will be punished for your own sin. Uh, but certainly what it's saying, when you pair it to what he's already said in, in chapter 20, is that 
When children walk in the sins of their father. When grandchildren walk in the sins of their grandfathers. When children walk in the sins of their great-grandfathers. So too will God with righteousness and justice bring his true recompense upon sinners. This is who God is. R.C. Sproul once told the story when he had moved Ligonier Ministries from Pennsylvania down to Florida. He was meeting with a consultant that was talking about how he could grow the reach and ministry of Ligonier. And so he sat before R.C. Sproul at that time saying, what's the one thing that you want non-Christians to know? And Sproul said, oh, that's easy. Uh, they know that God is. Romans 1 tells us that. They know that God is, but not who God is. Uh, they need to know the truth about God. And then the consultant, you know, wrote that down and said, okay, great. Now, what's the one thing you want Christians to know? Oh, that's easy, Sproul said. They need to know the truth about God. What the church needs today more than anything else is an awakening to God's character. And some of you in here today need an awakening to God's character. You might know him as one who is full of justice, but not one who is full of faithfulness and goodness and grace and mercy. Or might, you might know him as only one who is full of patience and benevolence, not righteousness and holiness. I wonder if you're satisfied in what you know to be true about God. When was the last time your soul longed like Moses? Lord, I want to know you. Show me your glory. I want to know who you are. Uh, such a desire is one that is always increasing in true Christians. Such truth is found, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the Lord. That's full of goodness, mercy, and grace. Who likewise is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and who likewise will bring righteous recompense at the end of the age on those who persist in sin. So you see in verse 8, Moses responds by simply falling down and worshiping the Lord. What other response is appropriate to such revelation? I hope you can think back in your own life and I do hope it's not that long ago or either in body or heart, your, your soul had to fall down and worship before the Lord because of who he is, how he has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Moses doesn't just prostrate himself before the Lord. He continues praying to God. You see verse 10 tells us, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. One thing you could do later this week is just kind of stop and stare at the life of Moses. He's a man that's worth stopping and staring at, such as his relationship with God. And what you notice, if you pay attention to Moses' prayers, particularly in Exodus, notice the degree to which God's word and God's promises saturate his prayer. Because in many ways, what he's doing here at the end of Verse 10 is telling God to make good on the promise and the declaration and proclamation he made in chapter 19, where he said that Israel was going to be his 
chosen nation, a, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possessions, similar language to that being of take us for your inheritance. The old Moravian missionaries of the 1700s when they would be at the ship decks before their ship set sail to take the gospel to some foreign land, they had this rallying cry that belonged to the Moravian men and women and, and children. They often would say something like, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering." And what they meant by that, taking largely text from Revelation, is may the Lamb receive the inheritance of nations. May Jesus Christ receive that reward that the Father has given to him in a people that Christ holds as his chosen possession, as his treasured people, as his inheritance. I wonder if you're found among Christ's inheritance. Behold, God's glory, number two, belong to God's people. If it was ever in doubt, it's now totally assured that Moses' intercession has been successful. God will go with his people. Verse 10 tells us, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Okay, so Israel, if you're wondering, it's part of what God is saying, isn't it? You saw my power in the plagues. You saw my glory in the Red Sea. You've experienced my provision in the manna. Uh, you've seen the mountain shake and quake when I've descended upon it. If you wonder if that runs the gamut of my marvelous works, just you wait and see. It's language similar to what Moses has said in chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, doing awesome deeds and marvelous works? And you could be in here today, of course, and perhaps in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your affliction, you wonder if God can do anything else marvelous for you. And take the encouragement of this passage that God has done marvelous things. God is doing marvelous things. God will do marvelous things. Can you remember how often the crowds marveled at the Lord Jesus Christ and His teaching with authority and power? Can you imagine the nations marveling before a crucified, risen, and ascended Savior? People that will marvel when that King returns at the last day and every mouth will be stopped in the sight of this awesome Lord. So you see, of course, verse 11 through really the end of verse 28, uh, God is renewing his covenant with Israel. We're not going to deal too much with verse 11 through 26 in particular. Uh, those are things we've covered in recent weeks and months working through the book of the covenant and the preceding chapters of Exodus. But, but children, I just want you to know two things about what God says here related to these laws that follow. First, belonging to God's people means worshiping God rightly. Worshiping God rightly. Because if you just glance through verse 11 through 17, he says, yes, you're going to go into the promised land. You're going to drive out all of your enemies and at the same time drive out all of the false worship in this land. You may not worship before idols. You may not worship before false altars. Why? Look at verse 14. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He won't give his glory to another. He won't share his honor with another. If you belong to God's people, you must 
Worship God rightly. Secondly, you must live before God faithfully. That's basically what verse 18 through 26 is saying. If you just kind of glance through those verses, you'll see he's uh, really reiterating the importance of these calendar-like seasons of worship in the land of Israel, feasts and festivals, the Sabbath itself, that their life is to be lived in a way that's faithful before the Lord. And so verse 27 announces, it's in these words that I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And parents, I I do hope you're, you're training your children to know the richness and the fullness of what it means to worship God rightly as they belong to his people, to live before God faithfully as they belong to his people. Of course, children, by virtue of God's covenant promise to households, he's a God to not only your parents, but to you. And in our church, that's signified, isn't it, and sealed in baptism that you belong to God's people. And it's a call to worship God rightly, to live before God faithfully. Behold, belong now, become is what the text tells us, verse 29 through the end, become like God's son. I was recently remarking with someone about how much a face can change in a few years. And we were thinking about how maybe the easiest way to show that is to look at a United States president on the day of his inauguration and then take a same or a picture of the same president on the day of his departure from office. And have you ever seen those before? No matter it's four years, eight years, a, cha- a face changes rapidly in a short amount of time. And what the text tells us before we get to verse 29 is that Moses, again, has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights uh, communing with God. And verse 29 tells us his face has totally changed. Look at what we're told. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The language there of his face shone. Again, more woodenly, it's almost his face was horned. And it's why in the Latin Vulgate, which was translated in the late 4th century and became the dominant translation of the Christian church for the next one, uh, a thousand years, is that artists in that ancient age would often depict Moses as having little horns. You can go find Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses and it's got little horns protruding from his head. But it's, of course, not talking about horns belonging out of Moses' head. It's this this ray of glory, this shining, radiating light coming forth from his face. And before you see how Israel responded to it, can I simply encourage you that no matter where you are in your calling and situation, what the people to whom you serve need is you being like Moses that they might meet you during the day and greet you during the day and they might know that you have been with the Lord. I mean, we tell this to the students at the seminary. When you come up, whatever the steps are or platform is when you prepare to preach God's word, you, you need to come up as though you've been with the Lord. Parents, if you have children, I, I do hope that you know the goodness that belongs to waking up to commune with God, that when you instruct and discipline your children during the day, they would know that you have been with the Lord. Or you walk into your workplace to love your neighbor, that they might see you too have, have been with the Lord.
Well, you see, Israel is scared of Moses' face, much like they did in chapter 19. They run away in fright and fear. Verse 31, Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. Moses talked with him. He assures them of God's forgiveness. He assures them of God's ongoing presence with them. He assures them, of course, of God's grace and mercy. But what the text really focuses on at the end, isn't it, is what's happening with Moses' face. Look at verse 33 through 35. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. If you know your Old Testament well, you might find it fascinating like me that the rest of the Old Testament doesn't talk in numbers or Deuteronomy about this reality of Moses' shining face. It's just mentioned here, and then it seems to disappear from Moses' life altogether. We don't know what it looked like that Moses' face was shining. We don't understand exactly how Israel comprehended his face was shining. We don't know what the veil looked like. We don't know what its material was. We don't know the size of the veil. We simply know two things. When Moses went to speak with God, he was unveiled. And subsequently, when Moses spoke with Israel, he was veiled. Such was the glory he experienced there with the Lord. And I do hope you can't read a story such as this and not think of the Lord Jesus Christ who met with this Moses on a mountain and God's glory was bursting forth in shining light. But how different it was, of course. Moses was reflecting God's glory. Jesus was revealing God's glory. Moses' glory came from outside of him. Jesus' glory came from inside of him. When I was in my high school years attending youth groups, there was this song that for a number of years we just sang over and over. I'm sure some of you know it. It's, it's titled, I Want to Know You More, and in parentheses, In the Secret. And it, it bursts out in the chorus, I want to know you, I want to hear your voice, I want to touch you, I want to see your face, I, I want to know you more. And there was a period of time that my buddies and I there in the church, we would elbow each other when the song began with more than a healthy helping of self-righteousness saying, I don't think anyone wants to really see his face. Didn't God tell Moses, no one can see his face and live? I mean, if this really comes true, God is going to consume us. But then we keep singing along and sharing the fellowship. And there's, of course, truth in that statement that Not everyone can look in the face of God, namely the face of Jesus Christ, and live. Uh, But doesn't it seem, as you get older, you you realize that maybe there was a healthy helping, less than healthy helping, of zeal without knowledge that recognizes this passion of Moses seems to communicate that song itself. I I want to know you more. I want to see you. I, I want to hear you. I wonder, do you want to know him more? And how might such a sight, as we talked about last week, not be a sight that kills, but a sight that brings life and likeness in God's Son? So let's consider two final things as we meditate here at the end. 
I want you to see, first of all, in the sweep of these two chapters, Exodus 33 and 34, that God is after your love. Remember what we heard last week. God says, I'm going to take you into the promised land. I'm going to drive out all of your enemies. You're going to dwell in milk and honey with peace and prosperity. I'm just not going to go with you. You're going to get all the external blessings of the covenant, but you won't have me. And we mentioned last week, and it's necessary to even see again this day, that's the relationship that most people want with God. The gifts without the giver. But what Moses is telling us, what Moses is revealing before us, is that's not good enough. Lord, it doesn't matter unless we have you. And of course, the Lord's answer to Moses is the Lord revealing unto us that that's not good enough for him either. That he wants the heart of his people. He wants their love before he begins to shape their life. Because, of course, it's in getting their love. It's in growing their love. It's in consuming their love that they'll begin to live as his covenant people. He's after your love. Number two, finally, he's after your likeness. Namely, he wants you to grow in the likeness of his son. Because it's later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul seems to take our text and meditate on the glorious reality of Jesus Christ. And he speaks about this shining face of Moses. And Paul tells us, it seems, in his apostolic commentary, why we need to know that Moses put the veil over his face when he talked with Israel. It wasn't because it was too bright to look on. It wasn't because it was too shocking to look on. It wasn't because it was too troubling to look on. It was because, of course, between his meetings with God, that glory would fade. And the Apostle Paul says that old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, it was a fading glory. That what God's people needed was a, a better covenant, a better covenant mediator, one who would ensure eternal glory in shining brightness. And so what does he say? We have a greater hope. For we with all of us, unveiled face, are beholding his glory and being conformed to his image from one degree to another. Why he'll say, even at the beginning part of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's because God, the Father, has shown the light of the knowledge of his glory into the face of Jesus Christ. It's only looking on Jesus Christ, that face that you can see, that of course you will find life in his name. That's even why an old preacher said, as Christ is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all other sights. It's the epitome of a Christian's happiness. It's the perfection of evangelical duties, namely, looking unto Jesus. You look on Him that you might know God. You look on Him that you might be conformed to His image. You look on Him and you behold salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us uh, this day in the midst of all of its fullness, perhaps even its busyness, that in any way possible you would hide us in a rocky cleft within our heart that we might know you, 
that we might understand your glory as has been revealed in the face of your precious and perfect son, Jesus Christ. And that by your spirit, you would help us to set our minds on your son, knowing that he is our life. And we do pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.